0: This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome to In Class with Carr. Uh, We already started, and I just hit record, so that's what we do. Let me thank you, and uh, brother, appreciate you again as always. Uh, There's a couple of things that I want to talk about today, but let's start where your heart is, and you said you were talking to uh, some kids or some students yesterday? Yeah, we
1: have uh, the Center for Black Educators in Philadelphia, uh, Baba Sharif el Meki, and uh, he has been an educator, high school principal, teacher for many, many years. And we've had Philadelphia Freedom Schools for the last 21 years. And so now we've all joined forces. And so we have our regular, uh, we're coming to the end of our summer cycle. We've been reading W.E.B. Du Bois's the, the Education of Black People, which is a very important book a series of uh, speeches that Du Bois gave at black colleges, several at Fisk, Hampton, Howard, uh, Lincoln University, Lincoln College in Jefferson City, Missouri, a speech he gave to social studies teachers and professionals uh, at Johnson C. Smith University. The last one he gave, in fact, major speech he gave to black educators before he left for Africa, for Ghana in 1960. So we have a lot of high school students who are reading that, discussing that, and they teach elementary and middle school aged young people and so yesterday we had a conversation. Uh, the center had a conversation and I was particularly, uh, I was particularly grateful for this conversation because they pulled together teachers and elders and community folks who are working in the city of Philadelphia. And I got to sit there quietly and take notes, which I, that's my first love. I just sit there and take, I'm like, I'm, I ain't no questions. No, I'm, I'm listening. Cause what you're saying is making me ask questions. It's like, what our, you know, folks have, you know, i am reading the comments on YouTube, people are like, yeah, I'm taking those. I got to do that. And so, you know, it, what really, really kind of reminded me was that uh, our young people, of course, our people are hungry, uh, are brilliant. You know, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have survived this temporary condition here in this country and in the diaspora had we not been brilliant. And also that educators have to have some, uh, some content mastery. Asa Hilliard always talked about that, the educator. You know, educators have to have, they have to have mastered or be deeply, deeply conversant in some subject content area. A lot of our uh, education programs now talk about math education and English education. And, and you know the emphasis tends to be on the technique, on the method, on the style of teaching. And then the question becomes, well, do you know the math? Well, I know enough math. no, 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 because <laughs> you those things have to be combined. And so I, we were just talking and it made me think about it today because um, you know when we and and for, and again, a brilliant, brilliant um, stroke of inspiration when you shaped that live conversation we had, I'm still vibrating on a different level with that interaction. Um, and I thought about it in terms of what goes on in the classroom and I thought about it in terms of our, what, what we would typically today call our thought leaders or our intellectuals like we talked about weeks ago and how a lot of that intellectual work, the books, the public appearances, the, the, the discussions are not really, um, well, let me not, say, let me not say it in the negative, could be better informed by classroom practice, by actually learning and teaching in community. So what we seem to have been produced now in a kind of imbalanced form is a number of individuals who kind of go off to themselves and think and talk and interact with folks from time to time. But that classroom is really where, and that human interaction in the community is where those who then say, okay, my instructions to learn about this subject and to come into the community and help others learn and help others advance, that is the center. So I thought to this, you know, today we would have a conversation about some of the most uh, famous quote unquote people who are looked to in terms of African-American history, particularly John Hope Franklin, and then connect Franklin to a larger universe of black meaning uh, at this moment.
0: John Hope Franklin, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma?
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, born in Rentiesville, Oklahoma, where his uh, mother and father moved uh, all black town in in Oklahoma, what they used to call the territory, uh, after they left Louisiana because buck franklin who was a lawyer his father could not uh practice law there the way he wanted so they moved to Rentiesville. and when uh john you pause, franklin,
0: for a second, you pause for a second as a person that has a law degree and I, I will keep saying that because i love that you did that and then pivoted over to afghanistan uh, uh, African studies to have a law degree for a black man in the 1800s What did that even require? I mean, what was that? Like, where, like, how do you even imagine that you could become a lawyer in the 1800s as a black man in America? I like,
1: I want to start there. I'm, I'm gonna tell you right now, Karen, this is one of the most beautiful things about our people, about humans. You know asa used to always say this as well we're always learning when people say oh i don't know how to teach these children they don't want to learn no a human being is always learning and we learn by modeling as you say we we see things from the time we come on come out of our mother's womb and, you know we learn to smile and frown i mean and we, and we always learning to the day we go back to whatever we, we were at before we came into this physical space so buck franklin in many ways was inspired to and instructed to do intellectual work by those who he modeled. It's very interesting. Franklin uh, was born in the ter- what they call the territory. I guess they call it Indian territory at that time, Oklahoma um, in the late 19th century. And actually he lived to 1960, which is very interesting as well. But uh, Buck Franklin um, went to Nashville uh, to go to college. There was a HBCU there that no longer exists. It's been gone for, for, for a century now almost. Uh, Roger Williams University and Roger Williams University uh, was headed at the time by and this is of course now you'll see the tie by a brother named John Hope <laughs> if you can believe that this is John there's only one good biography well John Hope actually wrote his own autobiography I got it over there but this is called a clashing of the soul this is my man Leroy Davis who is uh, was at Emory John Hope very important figure John Hope in fact Uh, This is where Buck Franklin met his wife at Roger Williams University, and John Hope left Roger Williams to take over the Atlanta Baptist College, presidency of that college in uh, Atlanta. We don't know it by that name anymore. We know it as Morehouse. And Buck Franklin followed his Jegna, his mentor, to Morehouse, and he graduated. He was graduated from there. And uh, Buck Franklin did not attend a brick-and-mortar law school. Here we are in 2020 it's very important to understand what buck franklin did buck franklin went back louisiana what did he do he took correspondence classes and, <laughs> and 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 learned the law by mail now you know you you and i we know what a correspondence class is i guarantee you some young people watch this and said, what is a correspondence class? because <laughs> y'all had the internet now isn't that something you say well i want to learn okay you have the internet you watching us Go you know, find out what you can find out. Buck Franklin took a male order set of courses and then took the barn path. But it all became it all it all happened because he was modeling those uh, those educators, particularly this one, in particular John Hope. And of course, we know after John Hope comes uh, Benjamin Mays, black American school teacher, as they used to call him, and that and that's uh, that's everybody from uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, Vernon Jordan who grew up in the housing projects across the street from Morehouse and he said as a little boy we used to get up and we look across and we see Benjamin Mays walking across in the morning the campus and we would try to walk like him so even little children <laughs> you understand we see Vernon Jordan and say yeah well where did you hey man I started looking at Benjamin May he didn't even know we was looking at him so 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 yeah when we see a John Hope Franklin named for Buck Franklin's great inspiration John Hope we understand that uh you become a lawyer in that moment because your people need you, and because educators from your community have seen in you what sometimes you haven't quite glimpsed in yourself. And then you just take their word for it because you love and admire them, and you've learned from them. It's sometimes you know, it's just is.
0: You know, when you talk about Vernon Jordan looking at. Benjamin Mays who didn't know people were looking at him every day, you know, and I'm reminded, I tell people all the time, your children are following what they see, not what you tell them. You know, we tell kids, you know, Oh, don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. But they're watching you. And the first modeler is in that household. You know, your parents don't have to sit there and teach you comportment and discipline and behavior. You learn that watching. I watched my father get up at five o'clock every morning. Before he left the house, because he you know, was triggered by growing up in a nasty home, he mopped the floor with bleach every morning and then got up, went down to his store because he didn't want anybody to steal his newspapers because they got, got there at five. He wanted to be there before the newspaper truck, put him in his store, and then went to work as a parole officer. I watched that. He didn't have to say, Karen, this is what it takes to be successful. I watched it. You're talking about somebody across the street growing up in a project watching somebody walk with dignity and wanting to model that and then following that. So it, if, if you're listening right now and you're raising children or you have children around you, they're watching how you talk, right. how you carry yourself, what you do every day, and that's what they're gonna model. So it's no, to me, there's no coincidence sometimes. People are like, I don't know where that came from. Oh, yeah, it, it came from somewhere. There's no, there's no mystery here. There's no bad apples. I don't think we come out the womb bad apples. Something they saw in that household shifted and changed how they behave, negatively or positively. So I just wanted to just put a fine point on that because that was powerful
1: when you said it, Ransom. No, I agree. You know, it's funny, and, and again, folks watching may think that we rehearse or we go through. No, like you said, we're talking and you say, hold on, and you press record and we have a conversation. So the beautiful thing that that uh, that, that kind of reveals is that we our institutions and our communities have produced people who are of a common mind. And so when you said it's no mystery, again, I just I hear Asa Hilliard in my ear. In fact, there's a book called Young, Gifted, and Black that Asa contributed a chapter to. And the name of his chapter is exactly what you said No Mystery. He says mm-hmm. all these uh, people pay each other millions of dollars in these white universities and these think tanks. And how do we get to educate these urban children and these children who have turned from learning? It's all, oh, it's no mystery. It's no mystery, and he and then he and then he and I love this sister, uh, Teresa Perry, uh, professor who's done a, a great deal in community education. Uh, holds a doctorate. She's at in Massachusetts. Um, I uh, got a chance to meet her years ago. I went up to a colleague, a uh, friend's graduation at Harvard. It's my only time being on John Harvard's campus. Uh, hopefully, I'm taking his statue down because I got a chance to pay my respects. Those of you who can read between the lines know what I did. Same thing I did at Cecil Rhodes' statue, but I can't do that no more at the University of Cape Town because they done took that one down. But at any rate, I got a chance to meet Teresa Perry and thank her for her work because I, uh, I used her work. Uh, she, she actually pulled together the manuscript and she wrote the introduction to Young, Gifted and Black. Her daughter, Imani, is at, uh, at Princeton, a fine, great, brilliant scholar. And so, but Professor uh, Teresa Perry, very much community grounded, and she opens this book by talking exactly, talking about exactly what you just laid out, uh, what you just laid out, Karen, which is she looked at some people that we name no, names we know, Jocelyn Elders out of Arkansas, same thing, Maya Angelou, uh, Malcolm X, you know, and she talks about how these, uh, these people learned the value of education, or were disrupted in the value of education that they were learning at a very young age. So yes, they're always watching. Children are always watching. And you ever know, see those children who are very quiet? I mean, some of it is their spirit, but some of it is they—they were. They, you can always—I well, almost say always—but you can often tell who's raised by old folks, a You know, teenagers who. Kevin, yeah, be, be quiet, y'all get on my nerves. What do you, oh, you know, you was raised by your grandparents, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I knew when it was time for the stories, I sat there quietly and ate my cereal and sat next to Big Mama and we watched the story. I mean, so, you, but you, you have that temperament and it's a beautiful thing because we're always learning and we're being imprinted, but that early age is so important and that's one reason why, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure over the course of the next few minutes, as we think about these institutions that not only produce John O'Franklin, Franklin, but all the other famous people and names we know. Um, that's one of the reasons why education, not only was, it is, was valued in our community so highly, but it's one of the reasons why some of the earliest and most important institutions in our community were anchored and focused and shaped by the need for education. Our young people are uh, were profoundly shaped by education. Um, during our live conversation, you know we talked about c T. Vivian and we talked about John Lewis, you know, we can clearly see the impact of education, not only their young education c T. Vivian's parents uh, separated, uh, split when he was very young, and his mother, uh, that's why they moved to Illinois, one of the reasons they moved to Illinois. and he, you know, he used to talk about how, uh, his grandmother, because the schools were better in Illinois, and they were integrated, and she wanted him to get the best education he could get, like your father, like my mother and father, and it's funny, because your father and my father are the same way. My father didn't have as many responsibilities as your father did, but he was up before the dawn, and I remember, I remember to the, my last day on earth that I never got up earlier than my father. Many times I woke up and it was four days and he was in there whistling in the little bathroom in Nashville, in our little house, getting ready. And and there were times when we didn't have a car, he would walk to work. So I often tell the former president of Howard University, Sidney Reboe, who I love that brother. He's an elder. Uh, Dr. Rabot came up in Detroit. He worked in the auto factory, uh, in the Ford plants to put himself through Wayne State College for his first degree. And we used to laugh because whenever something would hit a snag or we'd be in a meeting and after afterwards, we'd laugh and say, you know what? They ain't never going to outwork us. And then we would talk about our fathers. So, I mean, because you learn that work ethic. When I look at you, I say, I see your father. Why? Ain't nobody ever going to outwork you. No, I'll figure it out. Just give me a minute. You know, like, Give me a month. Give me two weeks. Give me a day. Because I'm going to do this. And so the education system was very much the same way for our people. So, like you said, there's no mystery to educating our people. We've just got to refocus for those who may have got straight off the path. Because when you know so 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 yeah, let, let, let's talk about uh, that, that a little bit. Um one of the reasons that uh, I thought it would be good for us to have a conversation today about Franklin in the field and those kind of things of teaching and learning is because we've reached this moment now where the things we knew about this country, the United States, are being revealed. Uh, you know, COVID 19 has almost like, I read somewhere somebody, uh, made, they made the metaphor of an x-ray. It's like COVID-19 just x-rayed the country and now everybody can see what we had already known. Uh, the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, uh, I think Penick is his name, Raphael Pinnock, he calls it COVID-1619. He said, yeah, the country has had this from the beginning, but this COVID-19 has shown through and now you see the rest. But I think it's a little bit, well, no, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna, it's um what we're seeing there may be better language for it. Did you see um, uh, that Arkansas uh, Senator Cotton, Tom Cotton, like he came out of Uncle Tom's cabin, or Blake, trying to introduce legislation to stop local school districts from teaching he the black, black. History. Right. What do you think about that?
0: Right. Uh, you know, I- This education system was never designed to really truly educate us. So what I've, this last, this period, this not even the pandemic, even before the pandemic, because we've been doing this for almost six years now on the radio, and I've been doing this for 20 years in my life, I've always recognized the, the miseducation of not just the Negro, the whole entire country on purpose. So it's incumbent upon us. This is why these Saturday classes are important for me. It's incumbent upon us to not depend on The school system and now it's even more to me poignant because there is no real school system they can't figure out what to do coming back so there's an opportunity here to actually educate to actually tell the truth to actually follow breadcrumbs and educate yourselves and one another it's it's our responsibility to have these conversations that you and I Dr. Carr having in your homes with your friends and each of you like you said like if you're interested in tech or you're interested in history or you're interested in math, go down those rabbit holes and then bring it back to to your community. Yeah, I'm I'm not worried. I don't focus at all on what these legislators are doing because they're temporary, like momentary, but they're impactful. But if we do what other people do, which is to not depend on a system that is designed to hate you, designed to denigrate you, to educate you, it's never going to be. So we have to educate ourselves. So I'm I'm rolling up the sleeves. I'm encouraging and challenging everybody. Let's get this because it's it's right right now. And so, yeah, of course, he doesn't want people, his kids to learn about it at their detriment because the more we know who we are, the less possible it is for them to put us in a place that we don't belong. So that's our our job.
1: It is our job. And and we always took it as our job. That's why I asked you right. Only, I think, really... A shift of sorts really occurred after legal desegregation um, mm. because we know of course that the system is not integrated many schools are more segregated now than they were before uh, the 1960s uh, so and of course that I think in terms of the most uh, the most effective uh, observations and writing that I read by Nicole Hannah Jones in the New York Times been her work on education uh, and on integration uh, you know, we might not necessarily come down on the sa- at the same place in terms of the uh, usefulness of integrated schools, although C.T. Vivian went to integrated schools, you certainly can't argue to those. I mean, I went to integrated schools. So, you know, in Nashville, we were bust. I mean, I, I-, I tell my students all the time, if my school had looked like my church and my community, I don't know that I would be here. And if my church and community had looked like my school, I don't know. That I would be here, and that really speaks to the twin functions of education. One is, of course, content and skill development. The other function is socialization. It, 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 like you said, I mean, there's a reason why we used to have to stand up and say the pledge, or in many of our young people's case, black folk not say the pledge and just stand quietly. uh, You know, and living in living in Philly for 17 years, you know, one of the most fascinating things for me was being in a community where there's a like Newark, like a lot of other places on the East Coast, where there's a heavy Muslim presence, black Muslim presence. So to see you know, and to interact and to teach and to learn uh, with and from black children who grew up in Muslim households. Very interesting to see the cultural diversity in our communities and even around issues like nationalism. If you say Jehovah's Witness, people say, okay, we know you ain't gonna say it But if you say certain uh, Muslims, okay, we know. I mean, but it's very interesting. Anyway, I'd say, say that skill development, content mastery, that's a function of schooling, but socialization is as well. And so I think really after legal desegregation, what you see is there is a point of entry to the socialization of our children that didn't exist in the mass that it did prior to the 1960s. And so, uh, you know, it's very interesting because in the in the Tom Cotton moment, I think Cotton is really, he may be thinking that he's talking about content. What he really talking about is socialization and he's afraid and he should be afraid because the country he wants to live in never existed. And It's being revealed. It will never exist. Uh, You know, because you can't found, you can't, you can't, you can no longer sustain the national myth of the American nation as the demographic shift inexorably toward non-whiteness. And curriculum is about socialization. Um, But I think, and this is where, you know, white nationalists mess up. He he identified an unnecessary target. And this is important to understand. Whether you put the number at 1776, like he does in his bill, I read his little bill, Tom Cotton. What did uh, Black Thought the Roots say? First thing to fall is cats with no chin. So Tom Cotton (laughs) should be real careful as he runs around. But at any rate, so I read his little bills, it says 1776. No, it's 1776, it's not 1619. But see, in my mind, if you haven't shifted the way you think about human interaction relative to these places we refer to in the modern world as countries or nation states, 1776 and 1619 are the same number conceptually because what is your ultimate objective? If you're trying to integrate your story into this larger American mythology, then it really doesn't matter whether it's 1776 or 1619. Tom, you you, you barking up the wrong tree. Your best bet will be to join 1619. And then if people say you can't join, then you have a problem. Oh, wait, I can't join? Because the challenge of any project would be, are you going to exclude the narrative that centers whiteness? And I don't know that necessarily that any project that anchors itself in this American framework does that. And, I, and, I, and that's not, you know, I'm saying that the 1619 Project has the same dilemma that lies at the heart of the work of John O. Franklin, that lies at the heart of the work of all of the educators and historians who preceded him and all who have come after. So we can spend a few minutes talking about what that dilemma is. Um, John O. Franklin, as I said, born in 1915, made transition in 2009, a very important figure. Uh, we know, and we'll talk about some of the highlights. I mean, when people read short obituaries or know anything about John H. Franklin, they know that he wrote From Slavery to Freedom, 1947, the textbook, which is now in its 10th edition. Uh, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham is now the co-author. She's continued to, to take uh, after Alfred Moss, who was his co-author for years. A 10th edition just came out a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, he uh, he helped uh, inform the arguments that made their way to the Supreme Court and ended up in the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954. Uh, this was during the time when uh, he was a member of the faculty of Howard University in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, he was the first uh, person of African descent to chair uh, a white history department. He did that at Brooklyn College, then the University of Chicago. He left Howard and then went and did that. So we know that he was uh, at the second Selma uh, march, uh, Selma Montgomery march in 1965. We know the first march. And again, we talked about that live. I was so glad we had that conversation. Because I have nothing but respect for all of our ancestors, uh, like John Lewis and C.T. Vivian and Octavia Vivian. In fact, made me had to go out and pull out. Octavia Vivian uh, wrote the first biography of Coretta Scott King. Coretta, the story of Mrs. Martin Luther King Jr. That's her book. Uh, and we talked about C.T.'s book. Same publisher, uh, Fortress Press. Same year, 1970. But I love this. I got to this dedication. This made me think about it. To C.T always and always (laughs) I mean you can't talk about these brothers without talking about these sisters you know John Lewis wife was a a librarian she's a trained librarian and a scholar librarian scholar on Africa she did all this work (laughs) this is very interesting so at any rate um when we think about uh, the, the 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 John O'Franklin, he's at that bridge. But I, I thought about C.T. Vivian and Octavia Vivian in part because, like we talked about when we talked during the live session, uh, you know, John Lewis went out on that bridge with Hosea Williams, and Snicket said they ain't going out there. And C.T. Vivian said I was at home. In other words, they didn't. So so the things we think about in retrospect didn't happen the way we think about them in real life. So John Hope Franklin, who is known for, for Slavery to Freedom, the textbook, who is known for publishing all these incredible books on Reconstruction and Southern history, who is known for helping inform Thurgood Marshall and, and Spotswood Robinson, Oliver Hill, those people who argue Brown versus Board of Education, James Naverick, who is known for being uh, on the bridge when after they get beat on Bloody Sunday, now everybody has to go down there, Snick, got the King, everybody's got to be there, and John Hope Franklin goes as well, who is known for uh, being many years later the Uh, the head of Bill Clinton's 1997 Dialogue on Race, 21st Century Dialogue on Race. Um, He's known for these things, but it's important for us also to understand that Franklin was guided in his work, which he did not uh, initially see as Negro history. He said, I'm training to be a Southern historian. And so, you know, he went to Fisk University. Uh, He uh, came out of Fisk, uh, went to Harvard. And he was sponsored for his graduate study, leading to a PhD at Harvard uh, by Theodore Currier, I think was the name of his professor, his history professor at Fisk, a white man who uh, so impressed him with uh, Courier's mastery of history. Uh, he, he, did, he did European history, he did surveys of history, and he so fascinated John Franklin, he came very close to him and he helped train John Franklin as an undergraduate. And when Franklin got accepted to Harvard and was worried about the money, Courier went downtown Nashville and took out $500 loan and gave John o. Franklin the money. He said, "Don't uh. pay it back. It's a pay forward." I mean, this—I mean, this is the kind of—and we're talking. What are we talking about now? That would have been the late 1930s. So we're talking about right, just in the wake of the Depression. Lot money, dollars, a lot of money. Unfortunately, that's a lot of money. Some people right now, as these, uh, as Steve Mnuchin and them try to cut off people's unemployment benefits and take this $600 from them. So, but $500 in 1936, 37, I mean, so, but but, but Franklin saw himself as an American historian who was focusing on the South, dialing in on reconstruction, his first book's uh, Reconstruction in North Carolina, this kind of work. And then he realized that at the center of America and American history is the problem of Black life in America. And I say problem in terms of the way America looks at it. And so he spent the rest of his life as an American historian, as a historian of the South, but as one who never avoided the question of race and in many ways lined out how race uh, operates and operated in American life and history. But I bring it up, I bring that up because near the end of his life, uh, John Franklin, gave a talk at the Library of Congress. He received uh, one of the highest awards the Library of Congress gives. And he talked about meeting Du Bois. Buck took him to see Du Bois uh, in uh, Oklahoma. He was 11 years old, so he hadn't been there long. Oh, by the way, they've just found a couple of uh, years ago, uh, maybe 2016, a small um, manuscript, 10 or 11 pages, handwritten manuscript from Buck Franklin, because as we've talked about, Karen, all Cameron, and one of the reasons why when well, you said well, we should do John Hope Franklin, because we were talking about Tulsa, and you said, oh, Buck Franklin was a lawyer; he was there. Yes, they were there, and they found this little manuscript, which is now in the collection of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, because um, Buck Franklin, John Hope Franklin, named for John Hope, and then John and Aurelia Franklin, who Aurelia was a librarian. It's a lot of these, sisters. again, we think about Dorothy Porter; all the sisters we talked about, his, his wife, Aurelia their son john whittingham franklin john w franklin is a a phd anthropologist spent many years in africa works with the smithsonian brilliant brother just a very good brother and he uh works with and helped get started and continues to work with the museum of african-american history and culture and he didn't know about this little 10-11 page handwritten manuscript by his grandfather because John W. Franklin and John Hope Franklin were able together to finish John W.'s grandfather, John Hope Franklin's father, Buck's autobiography, My Life and an Era. So there's a book that John, uh, that Buck Franklin wrote about his life and times, which includes the fact that he was there when Tulsa, the Green, uh, the Greenwood District was bombed and destroyed. In fact, as we talked about when we talked about Tulsa, he was one of the lawyers who filed lawsuits, ultimately unsuccessful when they were trying to rebuild the district. But I bring it up because this little 10-page, 10 10-plus-page 10 document is John, is Buck Franklin's handwritten account of what happened during that, 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 that massacre what happened during that riot, that white riot. And he's writing about, I see the planes, I saw the planes, I saw the pepper balls. It's like, wow, he's writing about this. And that wasn't included in the other manuscript It's just been been discovered a few years ago. But near the end of his life, John O. Franklin gave gave a talk to the Library of Congress. And John O. Franklin talks about seeing Du Bois when he was 11 years old, which would have been, uh, let's see, 11, 1915, 1926. So after what happened in Charleston, and he says, I saw him when I was 11. I met him again much later. He said, I had a, he he said, when I approached Dr. Du Bois after I finished my doctorate at Harvard, he was eating in uh, the dining room when one of these segregated hotels. He he walked up to him. He said, uh, Dr. Du Bois, he's reading the paper and eating and anybody, and we'll have to do one on Du Bois. because That's a fascinating character. So much been written about him. He wrote so much about himself, but this is just one little Du Bois story. He said, Du Bois, was reading the paper, eating his dinner, and I came up to him and says, I'm sorry, Dr. Du Bois, I don't mean to disturb you, but uh, my name is John Hope Franklin. Uh, and I, they say you're a great inspiration. He said, Du Bois didn't look up. Du Bois was infamous for keeping his schedule. <laughs> he, said he would write out plans, no exaggeration, for years in advance, and then map them back to months in the year, to weeks in the month, to days in the week. And you see these long charts. That's how he, he says I was productive because I kept to my schedule. So it's time for him to eat dinner and read the paper. I ain't got time to be talking to people. This is my reading time and eating, right? So he says, um, I went to Fisk like you did. said, Du Bois didn't look up. He said, I'm named for John Hope, who was your very good friend. John Hope hired Du Bois at Atlanta University. said, Du Bois didn't look up. He said, I remember Alpha Alpha. That's your fraternity, Du Bois didn't look up. Finally, John Hope Franklin said, I have a PhD from Harvard in history. I followed you there. He said, Du Bois looked up. How do you do? And went right back to reading the paper. (laughs) (laughs) He said, now, after that, he said Du Bois would eventually, in fact, all those stories, is a great book. This is John Franklin's autobiography, Mirror to America, the autobiography of John Hope Franklin. John Hope Franklin was a beautiful brother. I only got a chance to meet him a couple of times just a very gracious man. He said, in fact, one of the reasons he said he always stopped and talked to people was because that encounter from, for, uh, with Du Bois reminded him of the chance you have in an instant to impress somebody and maybe teach a lesson to the point you raised as we started. People are always watching. And you never know the impact you can have on someone. He wasn't offended because he kind of, you know, Du Bois reputation was well known. He said, and eventually Du Bois became very good friends with he and his wife. Du Bois apologized (laughs) and they became very close. But uh, I erased that because he said, I met Du Bois. Then I met him again when I was a younger man. And then we got to be friends. And he said, you know, but Du Bois left. Du Bois left the United States. This is really where I'm going with this. And he said uh, at his speech, he says, when he said, Du Bois insisted that people for who he spoke should never be satisfied with something so ephemeral as a promised land. Mm. So in other words, Du Bois said, you should never wrap your whole desires up in reaching this promised land, because we're human beings. We live in the world. The promised land, I like the way Elijah Muhammad used to say in Nation of Islam, he said, y'all looking for heaven and hell, that's here you're having the hell right here on earth. <laughs> you know so you know, right, the time we spend in conversation, that's why I said that live uh, piece just really, really moved me. I'm still resonating. It's like, okay, for these couple of hours, this is our promised land. <laughs> as you're always reminding us, we build it as Paulo Freire, the educator says, we make the road by walking it. We're in the, the moment. And so John Franklin talks during that speech by saying, he says, Du Bois said, you know, you know, you shouldn't be spending your life trying to find a promised land. And I think about that when I'm reading the language of some of our writers who talk about the promise of America. I'm like, man, y'all got to know better than that. Either you got a short memory, or you being dishonest, or you putting your eggs in a basket that doesn't exist, and you're playing into the Tom Cotton's in them in the world, because if you can say that, then they say, me too. Let's come together. No, not you. No, wait, actually no, me too. And in fact, uh, the people you're calling your founding fathers, they were white like me. So if you want in, it's some you know, I mean, you can black and brown them up, and do a little Hamilton, but at the same time, those are my people. So the whole thing gets confusing when you trap it 1776 or 1619 into this notion of this promised land. But here's the center of the tension John Franklin, brilliant scholar, better human being, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I never got a chance to meet his wife. Uh, I know his son, and I just I love that brother. I mean, the same kind of generousness of spirit. Um, but He says in this same speech, he said, but Du Bois left the land of his birth. He left because he did not believe that this land could create full citizenship, not for Negroes, not in the near future. And so he left. And I think about something Du Bois wrote to a friend just before he left, he and Shirley Graham, his wife, uh, he wrote a note and he said, chin up and fight on, but realize that American Negroes can't win. And so Du Bois, who had spent his whole life, he wrote his first articles for the black press, New York age, he was 16 years old, all the way to 93, 92, he says, I'm, we're out. And they go to Ghana, because the crew was like, come on over here, man, we got this Encyclopedia Africana we need you to work on. He said, I got you, I'm with you, I'm with you. And so he's, he and Shirley are buried there. And so, but but John Franklin says, you know, he left the land of his birth. And then John Hope Franklin delivers what I consider to be the heart of that speech he gave to the Library of Congress in 2006, he said, we should not retreat to Ghana, nor should we, or or anywhere else, he says, nor should we desire to do so. Our past is here. Our loyalty is here. Our presence is here. And our investment of more than three centuries is here. And I listen to John O. Franklin, I respect John Hope Franklin. I couldn't disagree with John O. Franklin any more than uh, respectfully disagree and then while understanding that point. And and, and I'm saying my disagreement with that attitude isn't a condemnation of that attitude because it's an attitude many of us have. You know, this is the land that we were born in, but that's different than the land of our birth if we're tying birth to a mythology.
0: Mm. And when
1: John Franklin says, you know, three centuries we've been here. Yeah, but what about the 150,000 of homo sapiens before that and the 10,000 of recorded history before. Why are you starting with three centuries? Is, it, is the trauma so shaped our experiences that we can only think backward in time, three centuries? <laughs> we were so traumatized. And we know in individuals' lives, trauma can often destroy memory. Yeah. We don't remember anything before the trauma. So a lot of our writing, a lot of our teaching, most importantly, Traumatized, you know, it is linked to the trauma. So when the thing keeps happening to us, and what do they say about trauma victims? I mean, it's like you keep reliving the trauma. So now here we are, in 2020. They are in the streets in Portland, and it's interesting. I was reading the New York Times, and and one of the headlines on the the, July 25th is, um, "It says where is it? That's on the bottom below. Marching for Black Lives in the whitest big city." And, he's, and it's very interesting. Says that they have been in the streets for over a month. A sea of white faces in one of the whitest major American cities has cried out for racial justice every night for nearly two months, and it's getting bigger and bigger. Now, of course, mainstream or what? Well, not mainstream, white stream or commercial news, entertainment media has decided not to cover it now. But the but the protest's going all over. So in this moment. You've got an attorney general of the United States that's saying the protests are causing these problems. You've got a president of the United States who's saying, I'm just going to send troops everywhere. And they focus in on the troops he can control. And we talked about that, what, almost two months ago now? The Insurrection Act of 1807. Um, they are weaponizing, instead of federalizing the National Guard, which he has the authority to do, they are doing what? He's directing the troops under the direct federal command. So, Department of Homeland Security. ATF, FBI, in other words, I ain't got a, and, and I, That those groups are probably overrepresented by white nationalists. So they they glad to come down and take a stick and hit anybody, white, black, anybody. So I'm saying I have to say that, and now we are, people are on the news and people are asking educators and companies are trying to pay consultants, what can we do? What can we do? No, the first problem is we got to stop believing and make believe. See, I made up a make-believe America so that you look at these things as aberrations. They are not aberrations. (laughs) As you said, this is the structure of the country and none of us, including you white people, should have as your grounding principle this idea that there's a promised land. But it's hard to displace that promised land because you want that promised land to be America and you want it so bad that you're willing to go back to the founding of this sphere of violence and attribute that same desire to people who would have, if you're a woman, had you in the kitchen, if you black or brown had you in the field and in the kitchen. Uh, In other words, they didn't see it the way you see it. And no amount of singing and dancing, no amount of rereading the constitution will enable you to back map into history that fundamental founding flaw. And so Franklin seems to me Franklin understood that, and it's very interesting. Uh, so did our people. So what I hope we can spend you know these last few minutes talking about is the divergent uh, traditions in our community. I mean, just to kind of gesture as you as you always say, breadcrumbs to help people understand that our people have always understood what Du Bois was saying, and that there's always been a debate over where we should put our energies and that it's never been either or. It's always been both and. You know, you and I both have traveled, been outside the United States, go to Africa, come back to the United States. My passport says US. I'd like to have three or four more. I hope to have three or four more. And there may come a day when I go and don't come back. But having that option is seen as being disloyal to America. Perhaps it is. But that's not the test for citizenship. I was born here, which means I'm a citizen. So let's not confuse the law, which is what Du Bois told those school teachers at John C. Smith in 1960. He said the laws are gonna change. And when the laws change, this is what's gonna happen. The law, man, oh, here's the book, The Education of Black People. We talked about this one before. He says in this book, whether now or why, the last chapter of the book, a speech he gave in 1960. He said, when these laws change, then we're gonna have to answer the question of race and culture. He says, because the laws will say you're equal but then you're gonna to have to ask yourself, do you believe what they believe? Do you wanna disappear into that culture when you have your school children? he said, and this is what's gonna happen. When the laws change and the schools are integrated, they're gonna treat the children like trash. The children are gonna ask you, why do I have to go to school? They're gonna start dropping out. I mean, this is 1960. It's like he done look forward to 2020. He said, this is what's gonna happen. If you don't decide what you want, when these laws change you're going to disappear into somebody else's m- imagination in terms of who they think you are
0: yeah See? we had this conversation off mic right before i hit record as a matter of fact we were talking about education and one of the the things that was important for me to to do with you why you are in class while we're in class with Carr, is because of your unique study of african history of the hieroglyphs of Nubia of all things because our story didn't start in 1619 and because we don't have that institutional memory and because we have been indoctrinated into a vision of ourselves that is not who we are the the real work and this is what the last seven eight nine weeks has been about getting the soil right I talk about that because you can't plant seed and 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 when the pH balance is off you can't plant seed when the when the soil is hard you can't plant seed if there's no sunlight in water and nourishment. So we've been providing the nourishment, the sunlight, the water, the right pH balance. So that when we plant these seeds, when we go back and you start breaking down what the hieroglyphs are and how they came to be and what what leaders we've had in the past from the Candace's to, to the Dora Milaja, to the Shaka Zulu, so we go all the way back. When we start talking about Mansa Musa not being the only wealthy person who look like me and you maybe the wealthiest in the world, but not the only one. And there's a history of wealth. There's a history of culture. Right. Where the religion start, when we say amen, we're gonna talk about all of that, right? We're gonna talk about all of that, but we can't talk about all of that as long as we're indoctrinated into a mind frame of who we are through the lens of somebody who doesn't like us. That's somebody right. whose who's benefit it is for us to not like ourselves. That's right. this, this world, this construct only works when we hate ourselves, when we don't know who we are. It only works if we conspire with one another to to follow that lead instead of follow. So why I'm even breaking down food. I'm breaking it like it's important and, and and it's evolving because as as we're having these conversations, I'm also learning. You you teach, you learn, you as you said, you write, you you study, because that's the process. And even that is African. And we don't teach that in the schools. That's not how our school system is set up. Set up to regurgitate what we tell you. That's and they right. repeat it back to me, and you get a good grade based on your ability to repeat those lies back to me. That is not learning. And so no, we're, we're, we're doing this. And I, again, I'm so eternally grateful, you know, as uh, I also hit you with uh, Whitney Young, whose birthday's coming up. I think it's July 31st. Yes. And I was, I was going through, he did, a, uh, he did a plan for Black America. Yes. And, yep. and I'm saying, like, where is it? I couldn't find it, Dr. Carr. And you're like, ah, I don't know.
1: Yeah, and- wait, wait, I just got to put my hand up. Apparently, it's in, his, it's in Militant Mediator. Well, Militant Mediator is one of the books. And then he wrote his own, To Be Equal, his autobiography. And I got them both around here. But I think, I hope, I, I had them since before I moved to D.C. So they might be in storage. But we're going to find Whitney Young's plan. It's in. Is and somebody listening might send it to us. This is the beautiful thing I don't about hope.
0: this class, because, because I don't we don't need to reinvent the wheel. There have been brilliant <laughs> people that have been you, I mean you're just sitting here talking about two of them, John Hope, Franklin, W.B. Du Bois, and CT Vivian. I mean, we there have been brilliant people before you and I even took breath. That's right. And if if we're gonna start as if we started everything, like we're gonna start from scratch, when they were smarter, they were smarter. I'm just gonna say it out loud. <laughs> I'm, not do- I'm not doing a carbon copy of something that was already brilliant. Let's go get the brilliant. Why do
1: you think, why do you think if, if we all have the same basic equipment, what do you think allowed them to be smarter? Because I'm going to agree with you on that. I agree with you, Karen. Okay. It, it's <laughs> painful. It's painful for people now to hear because we have all the gadgets. And we think, oh, yeah, no. But why do you think they were able to make better use in many ways of the same basic equipment we have than we have been?
0: Because I think they fundamentally understood where the power lies and and what what it took, right? So so if if you aren't allowed if you aren't allowed to be educated, and you have to walk as Booker T. Washington had to walk through I mean sleep on the streets in the gutter to go to college. If you had to go to school get a degree and then be told that's not good enough, as the the boys found out, that's not good enough. You got to start all over again at Harvard after you already had. Have- are you kidding me? Okay, no problem. I'm gonna do that and I'm gonna master your thing and I'm gonna graduate with honors. You're crap. If you had to do that, like we're, we're coddled. A lot of us who feel like we're, oh, we're opp- the oppressed. You don't know oppression. If you're watching this right now, stop it. Knock it off. You, we may be in the streets, it may be horrible, but you don't know oppression. And you don't know how to overcome oppression and still win because that muscle hasn't been cultivated. You know, we, you know, we bitch and complain. They got busy. And to be ninety-something years old and still, as the boys did, go to Africa and it's like I'm, I'm starting. Oh, come on! Who has the, te- who has the t- t- testicular fortitude or varying fortitude to do that? Yes. You know, so so you, yeah, you have to be smarter because they were smarter in so many ways. You talk about Carmen G. Woodson in the coal mines. In the mm-hmm. coal mines, coming out of a coal mine to go get a mm-hmm. PhD. I don't know too mm-hmm. many people who've done that, but it was normal. All the libraries you talk about. And because black people were, uh, you know, we couldn't work in certain fields, all of the black scholars and teachers, because that was the only thing a black woman could do, is become a teacher. Right. What did it mean to be a black teacher teaching black kids? I mean, listen, th- there's nobody, t- I-, I can't even say I'm smart in relationship to some of the people we talked about. And that's the challenge for me is to like get busy and like step be- my game up because I know I'm not reading as much as they had to, so yeah, they were smarter. So I'm gonna I'm gonna look at a Whitney Young and say, Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you're you're smarter than anybody right now calling themselves <laughs> head of an urban league. Yeah, he's he started it.
1: And and interestingly, we say
0: No, and I was like our job is to pick up the baton and run further, but we're not. I feel like we we've gone back and then we have to like run back and get the baton that they put here and figure out how to get back to where they were to get you know, it's like, we have a lot more work to do right now. And I'm, uh, you know, I, I see it and I'm and I'm nervous because I don't know if we have the discipline to do it, but we'll see.
1: We were, Well, this is part of it, what you're doing, what you're doing with us. Um, I was watching uh, your discussion with uh, Anna DeVere Smith, and it was very powerful. Um, and you know, I only met that sister once. She came to Howard when they did debut the movie, movie. And you know, I mean, always in all of her ability to listen to people and then translate that into ways to build bridges. And and of course, y'all are teachers. So to hear y'all talking about your students and to hear her say I was so glad when I was at Hunter and your students, you know, they had a working class, they're hungry. And she kept saying, not not to put down my NYU students, but she was trying, <laughs> you know, but, but but the point you're raising, I think, is very important. Our people never looked to universities as the source of their grounding education. Uh, they looked at them as a means to an end. They were certainly proud of accomplishment. I mean, when Du Bois uh, created the Crisis Magazine in 1910, they would publish the names of the college graduates, and you would see the black women and men. I mean, so, so that's not what we're saying. But, you know, the kind of students you teach at Hunter, uh, the kind of students that are at our historically black colleges, you know, at, the, at our community colleges, these students are closer to the broader swath of our people in many ways, and many times they are than those who don't go to college at all. And so, I think one of the ways we have to not only honor our ancestors, but learn from them, as you say, when Young has his 10-point plan and understand that when Whitney Young is doing that, when he's putting that out, when he's writing his newspaper columns about it, he and Urban League, Roy Wilkins, at the NAACP, and there's a new book on Roy Wilkins, I got it in the other room, I won't, pick, I won't stop to go get it now, but it just came out. Um, um, University of Kentucky Press, I think is, but, they're considered moderates. Right. I didn't know, you know, but I didn't even know the relationship between Roy, I'm sorry, between Whitney Young and the field of architecture and black architects until I read a speech he gave, because we were talking, ta- we got, you know, Howard has some of the best black architects ever been produced. And they had a conference last year and they asked me to come and talk a little bit about the ancient Egyptian architects. And they like, said, look, y'all architects, let's be very clear. There are experts. I am not an expert. My strength, my area of strength is basically kind of seeing how the things connect. So I'm going to know enough about a subject not to get put out the room, but I'm also going to know enough about another subject that the people in this room don't know about to help them think through how they can connect to the subject. So I'm not, look, I try to stay in my lane, but I was very honored to be there because they, they opened the conference by dedicating uh, the conference to, among others, Whitney Young. And I'm saying, so I didn't even know about that part. Now I got to go back and get to be equal because it's in here somewhere, or at least it's in storage. I'll find it and we're going to have this conversation. But you're right. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. And those ideas came out of black institutions. And so when you say our people, there's somebody that inspires Whitney Young. There are people that inspire, you know, before, and, and all of it is institutional. These aren't just individuals. And that's why, that's why today, as we were talking, you know, as you were talking, I'm thinking about how, you know, what produces a Whitney Young, or Will Wilkins, or Stokely Carmack ray or John Lewis C.T. Vivian, Octavia Vivian, you know, uh, what, what produces them are institutions, as we already talked about, and so one of the things about John Hope Franklin is very interesting. Franklin is produced by Black communities and Black institutions, comes out of Fist. but Franklin is one of the first white-facing historians who is kind of positioned to be a bridge figure and he wasn't trained or apprenticed by Carter G. Woodson. And this is where we we tie tie a couple of the threads together It becomes very important. He was friends with Woodson. Uh, They approached him at, at Carter G. Woodson's funeral actually and asked him would you consider you know taking over leadership of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. He said no, It's a real honor. I love Dr. Woodson, you know, I respect and I'll always be a member of the SALA and I will always do. Now it's a SALA, African American Life History. But, you know, I have some other things I want to do. And so he he did that, but That moment captures in some ways a a shift between institutional based Black education, which was largely community education, K-12 education, and the kind of individual kind of accomplishment as a marker for group accomplishment model that came after Jim Crow ended. So now we look at individuals and say, look, there it no, you're not even connected to black communities. You may come in and talk to a black community sometimes, but most of your conversation is white facing. You're talking to other people, which is fine. We need that work. But don't confuse that with what all these ancestors did. So just like as you said, a Whitney Young 10 point plan, um, what the Muslims want, the, the Nation of Islam, which the Black Panthers then took as their 10-point part, their 10 point part, we have blueprints. And generations before that had blueprints as well, which is why I wanted to kind of wrap it a little bit by talking about some of the pieces. John Franklin, as I said, From Slavery to Freedom, very important. Uh, but the meaning of From Slavery to Freedom in terms of a textbook that faces outward and says, we're going to integrate our history into American history in a certain way, cuts out all the institutional work that preceded it. Alfred Knopf, and he tells a story in here, in Mirror to America, the publisher uh, approached him in the 40s, uh, Alfred Knopf, and said, we want a textbook. And they wanted a textbook that they controlled. Okay. Franklin said, I'll do it. He was leaving St. Augustine College. He ended up at Howard and he wrote From Slavery to Freedom. Uh, in fact, Aurelia, his wife, as I said, librarian, helped fund him coming to Washington, D.C. He took a, a little room in Carver Hall, George Washington Carver Hall, which used to be, well, I guess it's still technically owned by Howard, but now it's condos because Howard has engaged a land lease, a lot of it's old. Again, these are the things that just kind of make me wince when we think about the fact that our people can't generate enough support so that we can control our dormitory, so that now the dormitory name for George Washington Carver, where John o. Franklin stayed in one summer when he was writing from Slavery to Freedom, is now a home for those who can afford condominiums. But at any rate, John Franklin, they had a debate over the title. He said for a while we toyed with toward Freedom, but that title was quote unquote too tendentious for a book of this nature. Freedom's People was satisfactory, but no one had given any great enthusiasm for it. Someone thought of its title from Slavery to Freedom. But there was some hesitation because a book with that title, though on an entirely different subject, had appeared about 20 years earlier. There's the breadcrumb in this book. First of all, when I first came to Howard, they had hired me too late to uh to pick my own textbooks. So for the first semester, I had to pick whatever they had ordered for that class. And they used From Slavery to Freedom. That was the first and last time I've used that book. John John Henry Clark, who's actually born the same year as John O. Franklin, 1915. John Clark said, if you start your history with slavery, everything since then looks like progress. And I know there's a couple of little chapters on Africa in there, and every edition has gotten better, the 10th edition better than the previous nine. You still are using Africa as clearing your throat before you get to the real history. What's the real history? The trauma. And yes, people say, I mean, in fact, all the books do this. I just picked up a couple off the shelf. I ain't gonna show you all them. This is my friend Robin Kelly who uh, edited a book with Earl Lewis, A History of African-Americans, to make our world anew. Again, to make our world anew. Okay, anew. This whole notion of this promised land, this vision. And yes, a lot of African in here. You're talking about African survivals, but the framework is still off. But when, when John Franklin says, there was a similar book that was published about 20 years before, he doesn't footnote that. So I'm thinking, what is it? But I know the other historians who are working and the teachers who were working in the 1940s, who were around John Hope Franklin, who no white publisher approached because they didn't have Franklin's credentials, which meant those white credentials. They didn't have his reputation, which was sterling. And most importantly, the white publisher didn't approach John Hope Franklin because they were so concerned with black people, they wanted those black dollars. And the textbooks that were published before From Slavery to Freedom were overwhelmingly by black people, published by black people, used in black schools. And I, and I brought a few of them out so you could see. The one that was most popular, let me see if I can pull it out here, yes. 1922, Carter Godwin Woodson, the Negro in our history, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This book at that time was almost 700 pages. Carter Woodson published this book in 1922. This was the book they used in the black schools. And Woodson said in here, his philosophy of black history, he said, I'm writing about the Negro in our history, our meaning American history, but let me be very clear. This is like black history month, which he would start four years after this first book came out. He said, and this is actually the seventh edition, but he says, this is not so much about the Negro uh, in American history, as much as it is about the Negro in history. He says, if you just tell the facts of what has happened to our people, who we've been since we've been on the planet, he says, our case is well taken care of. He said, do not engage in either undue eulogy or special pleading for the Negro. Just tell the history. So what he does is set up this framework. In fact, the first chapter, the unknown African origin. Chapter two, African institutions a background. Chapter three, Africans in history with others. Chapter four, foreign aggression. You are talking about the Europeans coming into Africa. Chapter five, the situation in tropical America. Before we get here, chapter six, slavery in a struggle with servitude. Now you're going to talk about indigenous servitude. It takes him up to, he gets to chapter six before he started talking about this slavery stuff. Now, from slavery to freedom, devotes one chapter, even in the 10th edition, to the African background. And in fact, Woodson did a book called The African Background Outline. Now, Woodson passed away in 1950. So his mans, Charles Harris Wesley, who he worked with, debated with, he picked it up. The Negro in Our History. Carter G. Woodson, and Charles H. Wesley. But this book, the Associated Publishers. This is the black company. It's in the black schools. And they even went so far. In fact, sometimes they didn't have money to print books before they sold them. So. And I'll show you a couple of books here. I love these books in particular. There are a number of books that I love, but these these two. This is Lorenzo Johnson Green. I got his book on New England. over. He was a great historian. um, Working with Carter G. Woodson, the father of Black history, a diary. This is how you know, for example, that Woodson and Wesley used to beef with each other because Lorenzo Green was the graduate student and he was working in the house that Woodson had that also doubled as the headquarters. And he would hear Woodson in there arguing with, uh, with, with with Charles Wesley. And just like you said, children or young people in this case, always watching. Woodson and Wesley never knew Green had a diary. <laughs> so Green going home, <laughs> writing, yeah, today, uh, Wesley came in and Woodson asked him, look, man, you gonna be a preacher or you gonna be a historian? And then they start arguing, I need this history of the black church. You in here talking about where you got to give a sermon. And so the young boy is writing all this stuff down. <laughs> so this diary is, is the art. And then they found a second volume. This is volume two, selling black history for Carter G. Woodson. Lorenzo Johnson Green's second volume of his diary. So the first one is working with Carter G. Woodson. The second one is selling black history for Carter Woodson. And when they didn't have money, they go. Now, mind you, in the summertime, these guys, these are graduate students. Woodson said, this is the deal. And this is why it's very important. John O. Franklin had a lot of students. He trained a lot of people. Woodson trained a lot of people. Woodson didn't train John O. Franklin. And Franklin never worked for Woodson. But all, most of the great black historians prior to Franklin Either worked for Woodson or worked with Woodson, or what they used to call Woodson's boys. Lorenzo Johnson Green, one of my favorites out of Fisk Nashville, Arruthius Ambush Taylor. How do you even get a name like that? All these guys, all these young cats working with Woodson. And when and they and in the summertime, well, Woodson would, would pay them, and he would help them by helping to pay on their, their graduate school say so they could go to school, get these degrees. In the summer, they would earn money by driving through, in many ways, the segregated South to these black schools, black churches, black community centers, selling the textbooks. Mm-hmm. These are the history of our people. Again, tying together part of that economic plan with education, and they would say, and I love this, because I'm, I'm a firm believer in this, bookstores are libraries with permanent checkout privileges. In other words, you you, know, you go to the library, check out a book if you ain't got no money, but if you got $2, get the book. If you got $15, get the book, because now it's your book. They were going to little community centers and they are little churches, and they would say, "Look, a book like this need to be in your house. You need to train, you need to educate your children." They're not just going to the schools; they're really going to the communities. And I want to show you something. I'm very. This is one of my most precious um, books, "The Negro in Our History." But look okay. how thin it is, because they wouldn't print the whole book. This is what you call. A Sample copy it has a few pages like here's a page talking about the black people who were elected in Reconstruction they show you that they let you touch the binding they said this is the deluxe one you can get a different one and they even at the beginning this is why I love this one because the page I'm about to show you is not in that other book Woodson typed up how to sell the book confidential (laughs) (laughs) how to succeed in selling the Negro in our history three important things to do You talk to these people, you don't talk down to these people, these are the people who put the money in our institution that allows us to fight the black history war. These are the people whose children we want to educate. So when you go into a community, you find the influential people, you sit, you talk with them, you show them this book, you ask them, can you show other people. I mean, mean, I'm saying, look, I respect everybody out there working, but these are the foundations that we have to return to. This is what you're building in cyberspace. These, I mean, he's, he's basically showing these are the breadcrumbs. This is how you spread breadcrumbs, right? And so from there, Woodson creates children's books, African myths. He's got a book for elementary school stu- students. He's telling African myths, right? And then he realizes everybody can't read. Everybody can't read at that level. So let me see if I have a copy of that over here. Um, And then I'll, and then I'll just show you a couple others and we'll, we'll be done with that because I wanted to. Uh, oh, yeah, here we go. Here we go they made a version of the Negro in our history, which is basically high school level, maybe college level. They made a version for younger children, Negro makers of history. (laughs) In other words, now he's got autobiographical stuff. And what he does is he said, this book is an adaptation of the Negro in our history to the capacity of children in the elementary schools. In other words, I'm gonna make a version of this book Elementary school students because we're not going to wait till they get to high school for the history, we're going to start them there. And so, then, and and he and his publishing company they publish so many books. This is, I just got this book last year, I was in Detroit, and I said, I went to the bookstore, I was going to the bookstore, and I found this book. I was so 1941 Three Black Women, um, Elise Derricotte, Geneva Turner, and Jesse Roy. And the illustrations are by Lois. Louise Maylou Jones, Word Pictures of Great Negroes. <laughs> it was a Word Pictures of Great Negroes, The Associated Publishers, Black Publishers. So when, when, when Knopf approached Franklin, this is about a market. So, hey, I got a lot of books about white press. It's important, but in terms of educating our people, no, 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 we need to control Education. We need to train our teachers. And so when when Franklin says, "Well, from slavery to freedom was good, but there was a book right before that." Was it, I'm wondering. This is this is a guy who I never got a chance to meet, but I stayed in the dormitory name for him, Merle Raymond Epps. He was a was a was a professor at Tennessee A State College. He started a publishing company, the National Publication Company of Nashville, two years after From Slavery to Freedom come out. Black was still writing their books. The Negro too in American history, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Merle Raymond Epps, who had a master's degree. He was a member of Woodson's Association. He started his own publishing company. That ain't the only one he did. He did a book called, now he he did what Woodson did. The same year, he said, you know what? An Elementary History of America, including the contributions of the Negro race. This is the one for elementary school students. Why do I bring them up? 16 project, 1619 project is good it's also not new. And unlike these, it's not by black institutions. He then went and Merle Raymond Epps and said, let me go out here. This is actually before he did those textbooks. So I'm thinking maybe this is one of the ones he's talking about a guide to the study of the Negro in American history, Merle R. Epps national publication, company, national Tennessee. This is 1943. Now, I'll kind of stop there because there are many more. Well, no, no, let me show you one more. Let me show you one more. Show you one more. Because <laughs> no, I gotta show you one more because this one is not a not a black company. It's a white company, but the authors are at HBCU's. This book was published in 1931. Readings from Negro authors <laughs> for schools and colleges with a bibliography of Negro literature. Artilia Cromwell, one of the great, see, these are black women too. Eva Dykes, Atia Cromwell, is at Minor Teacher College. That's one of the schools that merged to form the University of the District of Columbia. It was, it, Minor Teachers College was the school that trained all the black school teachers in DC.
0: Wow.
1: Eva Dykes is at Howard University. This guy in the middle, Lorenzo Dow Turner, is one of the great linguists in the history of the area of ling- linguistics. Is that,
0: that's, public domain? that's
1: public domain, isn't it? Oh yeah, all oh, this public domain, domain.
0: no okay. question. So, and, you know what that means, right?
1: means you're going to republish it. You know
0: that. You no, know, <laughs> yes. don't
1: tell nobody, Doc. No, look, everybody, look, but but everybody, but look, everybody can read, like, there are a million, not a million, there are many new editions of uh, many books, Souls, Black, Folk, Miseducation, Negro, but if you don't know the institutional history, the thing that makes them different are the introductions and the bibliography. So, you so can which, get people to write, you know, we'll just well, have, to we can collaborate well, he, on on Yeah, uh, yeah, yes
0: we will be collaborating Uh, as you as you're wearing that claflin university south carolina shirt shout out to my cousin shout out to my cousin timothy yes that's right (laughs) timothy lyons (laughs) graduate of claflin university from augusta georgia yes yes yes
1: okay that's and that's real because you know it's interesting because we were talking about this last week when we were doing the uh we were talking about this when we did the live one but um you know my the high school students that we work with we're doing a um We're doing a, yeah, we're doing a, we're reading this book during the year, The Lost Education of Horace Tate, Vanessa Siddle Walker. I love this sister right here. She's at Emory University. I've never met her, but I exchanged emails with her because I teach this in my Education in Black America class. This is a great book. Horace Tate was the, uh, was the head of the Georgia Teachers and Educators Association, and then the National Association of Black Educators. These were all the black school teachers in K-12 and many college teachers who were in the segregated schools. Some of the uh, branch chapters of the states go back to the 1800s, the 1880s, 1890. Tate. Okay, go ahead. Tate. Lord Horace Tate, yes. Yeah. Horace Tate, and I mentioned this because we're talking, about, we're talking about John Lewis and, and C.T. Vivian. Uh, remember we talked about John Lewis running versus Julian Bond for the Congress in 1986. Horace Tate they tried to recruit Horace Tate to run for Congress. Horace Tate said, "I'm not going to run." Horace Tate. In turn, let me let me pause here because people might think, okay, let me tie that little thread together. We began this conversation and come back to it over and over again on the importance of institutions that we create, that we control, that help us socialize our young people, help us move in the same direction. And so, of course, black K-12, black colleges, as we're talking about, all very important. Julian Bond who fell out with John Lewis over that race and didn't speak to him for a few years. Julian Bond's father, Horace Mann Bond, was the president of Lincoln University when Julian Bond was growing up. But even before that, he was the president of Fort Valley State College in Georgia. Horace Tate went to Fort Valley, and as a freshman, got so close to Horace Mann Bond, Julian Bond's father, that he became Horace Mann Bond's driver, <laughs> and it was Horace Mann Bond that shaped Horace Tate into being the head of the Black Educators. Ultimately, and the reason I bring it up when you said your cousin at um at, from Claflin, and he, yeah, i look, I was just at Claflin. I told, you, I love Claflin, love South Carolina State, love them. I have been slowly pulling out the histories of each state educator association that Horace Tate eventually became the president of the whole piece, because now they've been folded into the NEA and we've lost a lot of that history. But Vanessa Walker, brilliant sister, really traces the history around the country. And so this is the South Carolina one, the Palmetto Education Association. And what you see in here are all the black teachers in South Carolina during segregation and what they did. Here's Florida, here's North Carolina, here's the one Mississippi we talked about, here's Texas, Here's Tennessee, my hometown, and in this one you see John Hope Franklin's teachers, John Hope. You see George Gore. You see, and I'm saying, why? Mary McLeod Bethune? I was just reading the Florida one the other. Mary Miss Bethune in here. She was a president of the Florida's Education Association. So when we see in 2020 these individuals talking about, you know, anti-racism, talking about deconstructing racism in America, all oh, that's incredibly important work. But that is different work than the work that we have to do to go back in your words, find the blueprints. Because what's fascinating about these books, it isn't just knowing the history about it, is we helping young people understand that. It's identifying what made those black schools successful. Yes, they didn't have the same physical resources, but in terms of the intellectual level, in terms of the commitment for every child learning, they left us the blueprints. <laughs> they left us the blueprint. Stop going to Harvard, Johns Hopkins, Berkeley. Stop paying the Ford Foundation. and all. I mean, you can do all that, but my God, have you not a dollar to invest in yourself so that you can go ask your ancestors how they created generations of people that killed Jim Crow? Because you didn't kill Jim Crow, they did. And they did it coming out of one room schoolhouses, coming out of community meetings, coming out of churches where people went door to door and sold them the books. There's, there's no way for us to be able to overstate the importance at this moment of returning to listen to our ancestors And not in a broad sense to call on them for strength and we we do that. No, I wanna know how we can best homeschool. Do you? Okay, well, let's go find out the last time we did it. We did it before? Yes! Oh, I didn't know that. Right, because we started your history with what came on TV this morning. (laughs) Pause. (laughs) Let's go back. So I think that's, that's, I mean, those are just some, you know, some more breadcrumbs, as you say.
0: Eventually, we're gonna, uh, this is gonna, we're gonna do a live book club, uh, and you know this is going to evolve because uh, that's the plan into yes. more. And uh, I just can't thank you enough because you, uh, I, I have so much more work to do. Every time I sit with you, I'm like, I am not. Not only am I not worthy, but I've got so much work to do. <laughs> it's like, no. thank no,
1: you. No, you know I feel the same way, You know I feel the same way. Seriously, Ooh. Karen, and I'm not, I'm not just saying that. The more, in fact, what you, you probably know off the top of your head, because again, I watch the interviews you do, and, I watch, and I'm saying, you know, when Karen and I get together on Saturday, she be holding back. So y'all watch. We're going to do more conversation <laughs> on this, because I'm like, I just need to listen. I'm serious, because we, we're learning from each other. I forget, is it Doppler? What's that? Is some kind of effect the psychologists talk about. They say that the more you know about a subject, the more hesitant you might be to speak declaratively about something. And the less you know, say it again. I think it is the Doppler effect. I think it is Doppler, yeah, I think it is. But I mean, so, so, so when you say, you know, you say, I got so much more work to do. I feel like that every time I open a book, every time I hear somebody listening to those and most of the young people on the call yesterday where I was with the, the young people, the teachers, they're in their twenties and thirties. So everybody said, "Daddy no, please. I got three pages of single space notes, and I write small. You see, you know what I'm saying? So when I'm writing, you know, I'll take notes. You know, I'm writing like this. I write little small notes. You understand? So I got pages of. I'm listening to y'all because you're teaching me things I didn't know in terms of content, and you're teaching me technique." 'Cause I'm a i fifty five years old. I can't memorize all the lyrics to all the hip hop songs. Well, I, I need know. to understand, you know, I need yeah. to understand how I'm gonna reach this young person to come here with this mumble rap. Right. I'm not gonna condemn okay. it, but I know, you know, I but I need right. you right. to show me. I'm just because we're in the same craft.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. And it's not Doppler, we'll figure it out. But this the more we ask the question, I think I read that somewhere, the more you ask your brain the question, the more it has to search for the answer. Question asking. We've talked about this. It's not Socratic. It's African. The more you ask the question, so we're putting out a question right now to everyone. Like, and and it's your job to find the answers. We don't have it all. We don't have all the answers. Not even close. But through this process, and I I just feel like you know collectively, if we all do our little part, we're gonna we're gonna have the answers because somebody's gonna come back and then it's gonna piece together. And before you know it, we have the full picture. So I just want to say thank you. Book club's coming, all of that's coming. Y'all be patient. And I know folks are like anxious, but in your anxiety of what you don't know and in your feeling bad about the things you don't know, embrace the moment and understand that if not for this, you, you still wouldn't know. So now you know, now it's cracking open. And you know what you
1: know. And you know what you know, Karen, when we had that live thing, just like we predicted what happened in the comments, yeah, Somebody yeah. said, Oh, yeah, Egypt, Egypt, Mississippi. I don't know it's anywhere. It is. My dad used to drive a truck through I'm
0: like, Yes, we they all know. know what we yeah. know. Cairo, yeah, they start. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was, when we're going to do more of those, I want to do at least once a month, you know, yes. some lives uh, because I think people do have questions and it's, it's important, you know, because it takes a couple of hours for me to go through the comments every day. And I'm willing to put that time in because we're getting the soil right. But at some point, you know, it needs to be more interactive. And I'm just, you know, I'm grateful for everyone taking this journey with us because it, you know, it was conceived in here, in my heart, in my spirit, and, and Dr. Carr, you know, came into it with the same spirit, oh, no so the, 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 the ancestors lining up, and, and and so this this is special, it's divine, it's ordered, it's ordained, and I'm grateful.
1: And, and I should also mention, and while I'm thanking you, we're thanking each other, we, also the people who also help, I mean, a lot of people buying books. Support black institutions. There are black bookstores, San I mean, there's so many black bookstores. Support this channel. You have to do that. And all those black educators, there a lot of them are still in fact. I got this shirt, my dear friend and colleague Kathy Adams, who is on the faculty along with Andre Key and some others at Claflin. You know, COVID 19 has us all scared to death, but our children are going to bear the brunt of it. And so please keep in mind support these black colleges. Because yeah. we don't, you know, we are not Stanford. We are not. Harvard, in other words, we ain't got plexiglass in every other place and every kind of disinfectant. Our young people are at risk, so I just wanted to mention that, Karen. While I'm thanking you for creating things for us,
0: absolutely. And we'll be back next week. Yes, I love you, love you
1: too. Yes.